Hello, Disciple Makers Podcast listeners. I want to invite you to the 2022 National Disciple Making Forum here in Nashville, Tennessee on October 5th and 6th. Jesus had a strategy, a plan, and a roadmap for making disciples. In other words, he was highly intentional. He guided, coached, and developed his disciples into full-on disciple makers, and by living out the Great Commission, they changed the entire world. We're constantly gaining new insight about intentional discipleship as we look closely at Jesus. And if we're thoughtful and prayerful, we can apply many of those same practices today. So head on over to discipleship.org to buy your tickets for the 2022 National Disciple Making Forum. I look forward to seeing you there. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Disciple Makers Podcast. This is your host, Dave Stovall, and I'm thankful that you're joining me today for this episode. Today, we've got Matt Markins. He's the president and CEO of Awana, and he is being interviewed by our own Matthew Dabbs. He's the director of the Discipleship.org Collective. If you don't know what that is, check out Discipleship.org collective and you can view all kinds of content. We have live shows on there. It's a pretty cool online community. And you can get a free account and start watching shows like you're about to hear live on your computer. So check that out. Matt and Matt both got together and talked about what is it that leads kids to having faith that lasts? And there's some awesome insight from Matt Markins in this episode. So here we go. Let's jump in and hear from Matt and Matt. Well, hello, everybody. This is Matt Dabbs with uh, Discipleship.org, and it's a pleasure to be here with Matt Markins of Awana, and uh, they're doing some really great work there. I'm excited to have this conversation with him, and so I'm just going to go ahead and let him introduce himself and uh, and his ministry. Well, good to be with you, uh, and I'm the president and CEO of the Awana Ministry. Uh, we're a global leader in child discipleship, so many people recognize Awana as being a midweek scripture memory or child discipleship and evangelism ministry, which is precisely what we are, but we're uh, certainly a lot more than that. Many people don't realize that we're in 134 countries, 68,000 churches, and we engage 5.1 million children weekly. That's not a literature distribution touch point. That is a weekly engagement uh, ministry. So it's a huge pleasure to be able to help lead and steward uh, this ministry, we have a great team, and it's a growing, thriving ministry. And so, thanks, thanks for having me. Yeah, that's incredible. That's amazing. I did not know those numbers. I mean, I know it's widespread. I've seen it different places we've lived. Like, it's great. Like I, like I told you earlier, I have a high regard for what you do and the quality of what you do. I, I had no idea it was, it was that many million people. That's yeah. amazing. Praise God. Yeah, praise God. Yeah. Wow. So can you talk a little bit about some of the trends that you're seeing out there? Yeah, I think taking it up to the highest level to give us something to grab on immediately, I would say the biggest term that if I were a pastor or a parent listening that I would want to grab onto is just a simple term called cultural formation. The big thing is we're thinking about our children. So if you have a grandchild or a child or a student, or even you're thinking about your local church context, and you're thinking about your your children and youth population in your church, 
I think the big term we need to be thinking about is a simple term called cultural formation. So what do I mean by that? Think of uh, a fish tank or a, a local lake or a pond or a river. Uh, a fish doesn't, you know, recognize, hey, I'm a fish and I'm swimming in water. You know, a fish just, you know, is assuming the environment around it. And so if we imagine ourselves as a fish in a tank or a fish in water, you know, what what language would we put to the water that we're swimming in that's forming us constantly? Uh, it's cultural formation. So if you are in the Middle East, the cultural formation that's around you is predominantly going to be an Islamic culture. If you're in uh, Paris, France, you are in a post-Christianized culture. And here in the U.S., uh, we have a mixture of secularism, post-Christian culture, and Christian culture. And all of them are forces of cultural formation. Um, and so what, what is, let's let, now let's go to a level below that and kind of define these different terms. So what if cultural formation is the kind of the dominant force, but within that we have these different subcultures, post-Christian culture, secularism, and Christian culture, let's define those. So a post-Christian culture, Pastor Mark Sayers of Red Church in Melbourne, Australia. By the way, pastors, if you've not read the book Reappearing Church uh, by Pastor Mark Sayers, it is a must-read. But in Reappearing Church, he talks about what is a post-Christian culture. A post-Christian culture is like the kingdom without the king. The co- a post-Christian culture wants the goals, the outcomes, the fruit of Christianity, but they don't want its source, which is a triune God. It's the Bible. Uh, it's the gospel. It's Jesus and the local church, right? All of these things where these outcomes find their rootedness. So let's think about those outcomes. What are what are people crying in the street over? Uh, they're crying about justice. They're crying for freedom and love and redemption right? All and joy and happiness, all these things that people crave and want. That's what we're crying for. But a post-Christian culture wants those outcomes, but they don't want uh, the, the the root system or the source that they come from, which is God, Jesus, the local church, etc. And so I like to think of this as a bouquet of flowers. There, there's a Quaker theologian whose name has suddenly escaped me, um, but he, he he calls this a cut flower society, Think of a, a bouquet of flowers. If we set them on the dining room table, this bouquet of flowers has a lifespan of probably three to 12 days, if we're lucky, right? And so this, those flowers, if we think of them as those outcomes of truth, justice, love, happiness, joy, redemption, et cetera, those flowers are going to die because even though we're giving them as much water as possible, they've been cut off from their root system. That's a post-Christian culture. So what is secularism? Our, our good friend Gabe Lyons, I know that Gabe doesn't live too far from where Bobby lives, uh, south of Nashville. You know, Gabe Lyons from Q Ideas says that secularism is the dismissal of God and emphasis on individualism. So it's marginalizing God, perhaps even shutting God out and silencing God and putting all the emphasis on self. That's what secularism, the engine of secularism is about, is, is self-obsession. Uh, you might even call that uh, expressive individualism or hyper individualization. So you got we've got post Christian culture, we've got uh, uh, secularism, and then we've got Christian culture. And Christian culture is you know uh, cultural Christianity would be like, hey, my granddad was a pastor. I'm born in America, you know, therefore I'm a Christian, right? It's 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 a cultural expression of Christianity where we want to live right and be good. Uh, but we're not necessarily rooted in scripture, centered on the gospel and orienting our life around Jesus Christ. So 
cultural formation, this big term we're talking about, are, are the subcultures that we live in that are forming our children. Uh, and really, that whole process is doing an amazing job of discipling them mm-hmm. into the form of those subcultures. So, so when you say, what are the trends we need to see? Like that would be my starting point of kind of describing the landscape of today's American child. Wow. That was a very good summary, by the way. Um, so, I mean, so you think about like uh, saltwater and freshwater, like the brackish water is like this kind of nasty mix, right? It's like all coming together. It sounds like there's all these streams kind of all coming together in the West yeah. that Christianity is in competition with that, you know, we didn't used to be, we didn't used to have so much competition, right? Yeah, we. we I, I think you would say, Ed Stetzer might say that we were a quasi-Christian culture, you know, uh, let's, let's keep, let's work within that. So there were, kind of, he, he would, Stetzer says that there were three kind of ask, you could divide Christian, Christendom into three parts in the United States, cultural Christianity, which we just described congregational Christians, which would be people who say, Hey, I'm a member of the church down the street. We go two or three or five times a year. Therefore I'm a Christian because I'm affiliated with a church. Right. But then there's a, so there's cultural Christianity. There's uh congregational Christians, but then there's convictional Christians. Convictional Christians would be like people who are listening to this podcast. (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. we are centered on the gospel. We're rooted in scripture. We've oriented our lives around the person, the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And the the Apostles' Creed would kind of loosely define us and unite us together. So, So those are kind of the three kind of parts of Christianity that make up historical America and really even current America. But what's happening is the cultural divide is really kind of isolating convictional Christianity. And so then there's the cultural divide, but cultural Christianity and congregational Christians are actually thinking a lot more like who? They're thinking more like secularists or people who would be considered post-Christian. So uh, these people who say they're us, they're Christians, but they're congregational Christians or cultural Christians, they actually act more like a, a person who you would say was a secular or non-believer. Mm-hmm. So that's the mm-hmm. divide we're feeling. And our kids are trying to discern what is going on. I have this friend who says they're a Christian, but acts totally counter to scripture. And then I have these other friends who say they're Christian. They act more like me trying to be a Christ follower. What's up? What gives? What's going on here? That's that's what's happening. Gotcha. So would you call some of that like like the congregationalists and and uh without it nominal Christianity? Nominal like Christianity. Kind of, yeah, yeah it's nominal. Christianity name only, but you're not really yep. practicing. So so when you talked about the fish in the water, that sounds like a very passive process. Like because we're swimming in a culture, there are inroads that the culture is making that we're susceptible to because we're swimming in that water. Are so there it sounds like maybe there's like a passive formation cultural formation going on but is there also like an active cultural formation going on right like the world doesn't want us to have these distinctiveness and sadly i i think sadly uh matt that's that's what's happening in many many families a high percentage of families is that they they they're aware of this idea that i need to raise my children to be christ followers many congregants in our churches uh, and they might even hear the pastor use the term discipleship or we need to disciple our kids. You know, in 2003, George Barner released kind of that big talking point. Parents are the primary disciples of the kids. So pastors might be parroting that statement uh, on a semi-regular basis. But the data 
is showing that it's a lot more passive and a lot less active. So let's take this book right here uh, from David Kinnaman and the Barna Group, co-authored by David Kinnaman and Mark Matlock. I'm sure we can drop this in the show notes. It's called Faith for Exiles. And it says among young people today, so the younger generations, post-high school, but younger, only 10, about 11%, so 10% of them, one out of 10, are what the Barna Group would call a resilient disciple, meaning they've got these key markers of someone whose life is oriented around Jesus. They're not just believing it, but they're also living it. So what Kinnaman and what Awana both call resilient disciples is 10%. So when you really dig into that, a lot of that is because of the formational process. So many parents are assuming, hey, when I grew up in the 70s and 80s and 90s, I made it to be a thriving uh, adult Christian or whatever. They're just assuming these same things are happening. Well, it's not because the cultural formational landscape is actually much more highly pressurized with secularism uh, and post-Christian culture. So if we don't have a, a kind of a counter process or a counter system to form and to form our kids that they're living in, then that dominant culture is forming them at a, at a far faster and more holistic rate than a counter process, which would be you know discipleship or child discipleship or student discipleship. Yeah, I think about like and there's so much more more media input and time right of of outside forces that like are just so accessible. Yep. So I remember just like getting on TikTok. Someone, a Christian friend was like, you need to get on TikTok. I'm like, oh, it's TikTok. I get on it. And I'm like, if I was a 15-year-old boy and I opened yeah. this thing up, yeah. I'd be in so much trouble. Yeah. Like this is this is bad. I mean, it took uh, took like a second go around for someone to be like, yeah, you can flag things as inappropriate. I'll show it to you less. I'm like, well, maybe that works. Like maybe it figures out my interest. But man, if I, if I was like a teenager, this would be, this would be, this would have me. You know? Oh yeah, it's a huge, it's a huge, it's a huge time soaker, and it's also a gateway to all sorts of content. You know, yes, appropriate, right. healthy content, and obviously, yes, inappropriate, and then evil and harmful content. So, uh, and, and the the question that many parents are asking those kinds of questions, like, well, what's wrong with this, or why why can't my kids? I think those are okay questions, but they're not the best question. The best question mm. would be, when my child is thirty five years old, who do I want them to be? And then another question would be when, by the time they're teenagers, have I raised them to be teenagers or have I raised them to be people who are becoming adults? And so my wife asked me one, you know, well, she didn't ask me, we were talking about this whole concept of our, of our two sons who are now uh, 18 and 20. Hmm. And I said to her in, in the context of a conversation, Katie, it's because we raised them to be adults. We didn't raise them to be teenagers. And so if you have your eye on 16 and 17 and 18, well, you're probably going to end up settling for these types of, you know, lesser kind of decisions. But if you're thinking, no, my goal is to raise them to be a thriving 35 year old in their community, in their vocation, in their in their calling in Jesus Christ, then then we probably have a different aim. Then how can I, you know, help them to have the teenage experience? So there, there's a lot of conversation and a lot of nuance there. I'm not saying I'm not saying no to all social media. I'm yeah. saying there's probably better conversations to be had. Gotcha. Can you give some examples of what you would call a better conversation or a better question? Yeah. I th- so as an organization, we've been asking the question since 2013, at least. It, it, maybe it happened even prior to that. I'm just saying I kind of entered onto the scene in 2013. And so we started asking the question at that time, what is it the church does that leads to lasting faith in Jesus with, with children? When it comes to our children, what is it the local church does that leads to lasting faith in kids? 
And so as church leaders and as church leaders who work with parents, or if you have like high capacity, highly engaged parents who might be listening, those types of questions are, I would say, raise our eyes a little higher. Because when, when we think about children's ministry, we often think like, are they safe? Are they having fun? Are they coming back to church each week? And are they bringing their friends? We think of children's ministry as a tool to attract more people to our family. I think that's an okay way of looking at children's ministry, but I don't think that's the most biblical and the most strategic way of looking at children's ministry. I think we should be asking the question, what can we do as a congregation, as a broader church community, including parents and church leaders and volunteers? What can we do to form lasting faith in our children? Like I would really keep keep poking into that. That's where my energy would be is what, what forms lasting faith in kids, because we can be sure if we're like you said a minute ago, if we're passive, that cultural formation process is going to do a fantastic job of forming them into hyper individualists who are all about self. So I think we need to be a lot more proactive of asking that key question. Well, what is it the local church does that leads to lasting faith in kids? That's, that's where my energy would be. Mm, That's really good. Uh, I, I feel like I see a lot of, pragmatism like um lives that are lived in a, in a pragmatic way like does this work does this not work and you know christianity does, doesn't really operate with that as a priority like sometimes it's like die to self take up your cross daily do the hard thing tell the truth even though it hurts like you know it's not always pragmatic and it just seems like in a, in a secular time you kind of like what is post postmodernism is it pragmatism is it hyper individualism like you know, like what, what's coming next. But, so that's an observation. I don't really have a question there, but you know, so what, what are some of the characteristics that you see of these resilient child disciples? Like what, what are we looking for here? So we started uh, again, we started really asking these questions back in 13. Uh, for those who are online and who can see the visual here, uh, we've conducted now nine, we're on our ninth, we're on our ninth research project right now. Um, and we packaged all, all of this in our book, uh, Resilient. So we had only conducted four projects by the time we we finished writing Resilient. But the whole title is Resilient. The subtitle is Child Discipleship and the Fearless Future of the Church. Mm, so good. if you go to Amazon and, and, and type in Resilient Child Discipleship, it's, it's going to come up. But at that point, we had only completed four research projects. Now we've completed nine. We're in... One of them was with the Barna Group, which maybe we can talk about later. But um, in in our in our book, Resilient, we talk about those primary factors. So so as a pastor, uh, if, if you're thinking like, well, what are we? What is it we even do with our kids? You know, or if, as a parent, if you're like, hey, my kids are in children's ministry all the time, but I really don't know what's going on. You know, what are the what's the strategy that our church is using? And so uh, we we really figured out we took our own research and then we kind of stacked on top of that reading the gospels and asking ourselves when we see Jesus discipling or making disciples, what behaviors do we see him doing? What are the objectives behind what he's doing? Then on top of that, we put uh, like, like a lot of other research from like Fuller Youth Institute and Lifeway and the Barnett Group and Christian Smith and others. Then on top of that, because we're a, a global organization, we took a lot of anecdotal uh, information that we get from personal conversations and letters and newsletters we get from partners all around the world. So when we put all of that together and we said, hey, let's distill down what we're seeing 
the evidence shows that are the primary factors that lead to lasting faith in children, we came down to three factors, and we call those factors belong, believe, become. Now, that's our brand language, belong, believe, become. But underneath each one of those are primary objectives. Belong is highly relational. Belong is highly relational ministry led by loving, caring adults. So even if if a church doesn't like the word belong, okay, but that's not the main point. The main point is the objective underneath it, which is highly relational ministry. The second term is believe. It's deeply scriptural ministry rooted in the gospel and the power of God's word. And that third area is uh, become, which is about truly experiential ministry. It's helping kids experience the practices in the presence of God. It's helping children experience living out their faith in a world that's that's antagonistic to the faith. And thirdly, helping them in this area of experience, experiencing using their gifts and serving others and serving the church. So these three areas of relationships, engaging the scriptures and experiences, all of our research, as well as when we combine other people's research and what we're seeing Jesus doing in the gospels, so if I were a kids pastor or if I were a lead pastor listening to this, and I, and this is something I, I take time to really vet on my own, and I say, you know what? I think Awana is correct. I think those are the primary factors that tend to lead to lasting faith in children. I think I what I would do next is say, okay, let's get a whiteboard and let's wipe away all of the progress. Let's, if we could just imagine that we're rebuilding our children's ministry, wipe away all the programs and start with the primary objectives. Don't start with the programs or the curriculum or the ministry, I would ask myself, what are the opportunities we're using to engage children or to try to disciple them? And are those three objectives present of cutting across all of our ministries? I think I would start from, because that pers- that's a that's a much more objective and strategic and philosophical way of building a ministry. Now, we might end up with the exact same programs. We might end up with a midweek or a Sunday or a small group and large group or VBS or whatever, but within those ministries, do we see those three primary factors present? And are we able to really evaluate how are we doing with a highly relational ministry, deeply scriptural and truly experiential? Yeah. I think that that's what I would be paying attention to if I was a pastor. And, and go, let's go back to what you were talking about in the beginning. That cultural formation process is so powerful. If we're not super intentional with this generation, we're just, we're just going to keep losing higher and higher percentages. Instead of instead of that 10% David Kinnaman's talking about, it's probably going to be seven and then five. We've got to be super intentional. And we can, what if it were 20 and 30%? I think, I think if we're super intentional, we can form resilient disciples through the power of the Holy Spirit. Hey, I hope you've been enjoying this episode so far. I wanted to take just a second to tell you about the Discipleship.org Collective. It's an online community designed for disciples and disciple makers. And if you're a follower of Jesus, then you fit in one or both of those categories. And we made this website with your needs in mind. The website itself is super cool because it's like stepping into a virtual church building. There's a welcome center, an auditorium for main events, and even some classrooms. Right now, you can get free access to this collective where we provide weekly webinars, we've got ebooks, and even disciple making assessments for you and also your whole church. And don't mistake this for just a website, it's actually a community for disciple makers. Basic membership is free, but there's also a premium access option that includes courses, certifications, and online gatherings with other leaders from around the world. 
So go to discipleship.org slash collective and sign up for your free membership today. I hope this is a fair question. Um, hey, all questions. Bring it on. Uh, Let's do this. This will be fun. <laughs> so so if you were to look at the average, like this, the typical children's ministry, so you have your your belong, believe, become. Yeah. And that's that's statistically data driven. This is what we've yeah. seen come out the other end, right? And yeah. we know it works. Uh it's it's verified. If you were to look at the typical children's ministry and you were to say, like, what you are pouring your time and energy into reflects what? Like they because because they're not operating from belong, believe, become, they're operating from great personality youth leader or like what what are the in, in in real practice like a real typical church what would their three be or what would their two or four or three like in in actuality of what they're what they think is going to do it does that make so, sense yeah so for those online or those listening audio only you can't see what i'm holding up but do you want can you read that Awana, how children's ministry leaders spend their time. Okay, there we it's go. It's literally, it's literally the question you just asked. Yes. So this, okay. this here is a is a 200-page document where we just got fresh data back. We're releasing it in September, by the way. Uh, and and uh, perhaps even at uh, the National Disciple Making Forum, we can find other ways to get this out to your community as well. But w- what we're trying to say to the church is if we're going to move from what we call the old map of children's ministry, which is about attractional or church growth type driven model. But if we're going to move away from that toward formational, which is about how do we form children who are lifelong disciples in a post-Christian world, we've got to really understand how do we spend our time to begin yeah. with? Because yeah. if we until we until we can articulate, well, what is it? What are our current investments so we can know where what to do less of? So that we can know what to do more of. You know, we've got to really understand how we spend our time. So I can tell your train of thought is exactly where our train of thought is. We we really have to understand that. And this is newer data for me. So I'm not well versed in this. We're, we're 30 days from being able to release it. So we're still wrapping our minds around it. But your point is spot on. We have to evaluate if we're going to do more of something else. What can we let go of? I, I like to think of it as letting go of lesser things. There's going to be lesser things we can let go of to put more strategic investment to what's most fruitful in the gospel. Yeah, like when you choose something, you're choosing other things. So, like we chose to, we, we believe God was leading us to plant a church, and in doing so, we're doing it in a way where we're trying to follow God's lead. We're trying to use people's time and talents well to put people to work where they're best suited. Like so, we, we've set some priorities that we think will be a blessing to our community and help us reach out. So then I run into other models and I'm like, whoa, that guy's been doing this way longer. He's way better expert than, or she is, he is whoever's like they're They know. And they're like, I'm, I'm doing this wrong. I must be doing this wrong. Right. And it's like, well, not necessarily like, you know, I, I think that. So, so one of the priorities is like, what, what is God leading us to do? And that may not look like what he's leading you to do. Right. And so that kind of discernment is, is very, very important. So there may not be like a perfect cookie cutter, but I think it's really important to 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 have an attempt or due diligence at some sort of verifiable efficacy. Like, you know, we can show that this method has has some teeth to it. Like God typically uses these things in some powerful ways. But if we're not intentional, then we're just going to kind of float around. Like you said, the cultural waters are just going to just kind of wash us away and we're just going to keep doing things the way we've always known. 
Well, I want I want to reiterate. You said something that sparked this thought. I want to reiterate that this isn't only research based; it's gospel based. Again, we went back to the yeah. gospels, and so when I when I say highly relational, you can envision Jesus on countless New Testament passages and gospel passages where Jesus is being highly relational. When I say deeply scriptural, I think of all the times he's teaching on the side of a hill or he's quoting from the old Testament, like he's, you know, Jesus was deeply scriptural. And when I say truly experiential, that he's helping them experience the practices of being a disciple or helping them experience using their gifts and talents or helping them experience how to navigate a tricky world. Like, like those, those three things ring true with observational, the observational ability that we Mm -hmm. have in our own minds to read the gospels and, and, and to observe that. And so so I, I want to reiterate that although this is very research based, and and, and I'm and I I'm I believe that I, I can confidently say that Awana has been a leading researcher in the children's ministry space over the last decade. We've been highly committed to that. Again, because we're trying to answer that singular question: What is it the local church does that leads to lasting faith in children? And again, when I say the local church, I certainly mean the church in partnership with those who are with kids every week, which would be their parents and their caregivers. And so, so I say that as kind of a bridge to uh, when you were mentioning earlier about the efficacy, like how effective is what we're doing? It made me think of the Barna group. So we, we recently published our book, uh, children's ministry in a new reality with Barna. Uh, It's the latest children's ministry uh, research project from Barna. It's actually the largest children's ministry research project they've ever conducted. So if you Google children's ministry in a new reality from Barna, you're going to find that. So we we released this, the results from, from that research project, which is super fascinating. Maybe we could talk more about that. But what I think is uh, important to mention in light of what you said about efficacy is in, in partnership with Barna and Glue. If you're not familiar with Glue, that's G-L-O-O for those listening. Glue is a local church data organization where they can help bring insights uh, and so we partnered with Barna and Glue to develop a children's ministry assessment. It's, it's a children's ministry evaluation tool. So you can evaluate, hey, how are we doing when those three areas of highly relational, deeply scriptural, truly experiential? And there's like 35 kind of data points in with, within each one of those three where you can score your effectiveness as a church. Uh, not because it's a performance-based thing, but it's because we're talking about the stewardship of the souls of our children. Yes. And if we want to, if you want to develop a dashboard that says, "Hey, here's where you're doing well. Here's where where your kind of weak spots are. Here's some suggestions for how you could become more effective as you steward child discipleship." So that's the motivation there. Oh, that's really good. Um, so I, mean, I think when I think about Jesus, I think, well, you know, he really liked to have fun. I think, like, if you're around Jesus, like, there's a great joy about him, a great like playfulness at certain times yeah you know and like we like our kids to come to church and have have fun you know um and but it's kind of like what are the metrics that we're looking at it's like well are are there different like scales of things or like proportions of things like um because jesus wasn't always having fun sometimes it's woe to the pharisees too you know and he's getting really serious about various things so so it may well be that you know a lot of the the pieces of the of the organization are okay but they may just be out of balance yeah. Yeah. I don't know if you if you're familiar with the term like stable, stable, uh, table stakes. Uh, I'm not, I'm not a gambler. I don't gamble, okay. but there's a yeah. gambling turn called table stakes. Uh, table stakes is like the minimum amount you've got to bet to get in. In other words, it's the minimum requirement. So I would put fun in more of a table stakes, cat, you know, meaning like you don't have to tell people who work with kids, 
hey, make sure you have fun. Like that's yeah. kind of assumed. It's the minimum table stake you need to kind of get in the game, so to speak. I would I would even go farther to say in our research, we do gap analysis. Like like we rate like how important do you think something is? And then we follow that up with how how well do you think you're performing? And then we try to look at that gap. In our gap analysis, and we've done several projects, the only area where the local church ever outperforms how important we say something is, is fun. Like fun is like all exclamation points, all caps. We got this, you know, we know how to have fun <laughs> with kids, you know? Yeah. And, and, and I think it's because we put so much emphasis in the church. This is what we call the old map of children's ministry. We put so much emphasis on entertainment and relevance. You know, we double, triple down on entertainment with children. If you go to a children's ministry convention or conference and you walk around the exhibit hall, it's obvious that we're all about entertainment. A lot of the booze are about widgets and gadgets and videos and all this kind of stuff we would do with kids. So my point is we got entertainment. We've got the fun factor. So we don't have to remind people that. And matter of fact, you're probably like me where you've been on mission trips around the world and you've been to third world countries and you can you can be in the bush of Africa and kids are going to have fun. Like fun is just happening in every possible context with children. So uh, that's super important. Um, I think, but that's also table stakes. It's the minimum requirement you need with children. We've got an opportunity to ask a lot better questions, not just, Hey, Johnny, did you have fun in church today? It's, Hey, what did, you know, what do you, what did you see God doing this morning? What did you learn? What are you hearing from the Bible? There's a, there's a lot better opportunities that we have to ask our kids some real critical questions. That's really good. One of the things we try to do, our boys are 11 and 13, is we we try to point out when we saw God working. That's good. So it's not just like, hey, this happened today. It was great. It's like, can you believe that God did such and such? Like we were praying about this and then today God did that. And they're like, wow, that's really cool, you know? And then we see them like, uh, well, this hasn't happened yet. Well, okay, dad, we should probably pray about that. You should just ask God to do that. Yeah, you're right. And so we start hearing them see it. Like they, they get it, you know? Yeah. And, and so, so talk a little bit, if you would, about um, just the partnership between parents and churches, because you're like talking about that on the church end, the church is talking maybe in these sorts of terms and the parents are too, like how can churches and parents like better coordinate? Yeah. Before, before I, I want to comment on what you just said, my, my co-author Valerie Bell, co-author of Resilient, what you just said there, we call that giving kids eyes to see giving kids eyes to see God. If, if we're not careful, Sunday school or children's church, large group, small group can can become almost like a history lesson. Like these things yeah. happened thousands of years ago in the Bible, right? But we're trying to say our God is, the Bible is a living and active book. The Holy Spirit is speaking today mm-hmm. uh, through the teaching of his word and the reading and, and thinking and praying on his word. And we're trying to help kids see God's active now. Muslims are coming to Christ, you know, in larger numbers than we've seen uh, in modern history, right? So, like, God is very active. And so, when God performs a miracle in our lives, like in in mine and Katie's marriage, there was a time where we needed a central heat and air unit. We had just taken a Dave Ramsey class. We weren't going to go in debt. So, we prayed and prayed and prayed and used space heaters in the middle of winter. And guess what? Miraculously, a central heat and air unit shows up at our house and these guys install it for free. Like that was a monumental faith moment in our lives. So when our kids were little, we would retell that story all the time. So what are we doing there? We're helping kids see our God is not only an ancient God from an ancient text 
from the Bible, God is also active today. He's healing today. He's walking beside us. When we pray, when we have our coffee in the morning, He's God is with us, and He is in the Holy Spirit is inside mm. of us. Promise to go with us to the ends of the earth. That's so back good. Here. Yeah. Can I play off that just one sec? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, there's so many stories like that. I mean, so many cool yeah, stories. Yeah. Like we, I, I would love to spend an hour just telling God stories like that. It's so cool. I wanted to share like several when you say that, uh, we, we, we prayer walk and I, we take our kids prayer walking. Right. And so, um, being a church plant, we, we like first Saturday of the month, usually, you know, we gather some people together and walk the neighborhood or Auburn university or whatever. So the last time we did this, our our eleven year old, we got out there and we're praying. We got we gather up in a circle and we pray. Okay, God, use this time, open up hearts, open up doors, bring people outside. Do you want us to meet? We're just praying all this stuff, right? And so we start walking, and our eleven year old says, <laughs> he just says out of the blue, God, uh, Dad, wouldn't it be awesome if twelve people showed up today, just like Jesus' disciples? And I'm like, in my head, I'm like, we've never had twelve people show up. You know, usually it's like five, you know, six, and. We start walking and a few other people walk in, a few other people walk in and we're all walking and praying. And it's like, we have 12 people. He's like, dad, we have 12 people. Can you believe God did that? I'm like, how cool is that? That has never happened. This is amazing. so cool. That's and for him to, to ask for it, pray for it and see it and acknowledge it. I'm like, okay, you, you got it. So let's go. I, I like to hang on to phrases because they help me understand life. That's that phrase Valerie uses. We've got to give our kids eyes to see. We've got to give our kids eyes to see that God is active and alive yes. now. Yeah. He is an ancient God. He's an eternal God, but he's also here. He's present and he's active today. And I think when kids begin to see what, what you just did, there was a third B was become. You were teaching your child, your son to experience that God is alive, active. That was a real life experience. He had skin in the game because he was praying. And when he experienced that, it's like, whoa, I'm seeing that God hears me. Uh, he's present now and he's at work. That, that's that's putting the three B into action. Now, let me give you like six stories where I failed, right? I mean, I don't want to act like I'm the, <laughs> well, the, I'm the hero. I'm not the God hero. God is very active through failure. He's a God. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's right. That's right. So go, going back to your question, like, what is the framework for the church today? So again, in this report, Children's Ministry in a New Reality from Barna, uh, we, we uncovered some data that there's a stalemate in the, the children's, or excuse me, in the family ministry conversation. There's a stalemate in the family ministry conversation. Again, go back to 2003. George Barna published his book, Transforming Children into Spiritual Champions. It was it was a great selling book for those uh, in children's ministry and for senior pastors as well. Barna was essentially saying, look, church, you've got to partner with parents to disciple your kids. Because kids, they, parents have children, so they have so much influence on children. Uh, they have so much time you know, outside of the local church with their kids. And so what happened in children's ministry was we sort of like a warrior charges a hill with their sword. We we put, took out our swords and we charged the hill with that message of parents are the primary spiritual. They're primarily responsible for the spiritual development of their children. And that really showed up in the data with the Barna group. When we asked children's ministry leaders who's primarily responsible for the discipleship of their kids. It was 95% parents and only 5% said the local church. When we asked parents who's primarily responsible, it was basically split right down the middle, half said church, half said home. Hmm. And I think what's happened is 
we have parroted the soundbite. Parents are the primary disciples of their kids, but it never moved from, I shouldn't say never, at, mm-hmm. the data, the data is showing that at large, it hasn't actually translated into activity coming from parents where they're actually in mass numbers and mass percentages participating in the process of discipleship. So the reason we say there's a stalemate is the church is 95% saying parents are responsible, but parents are like kind of split church, home, church, home. And in a lot of ways, maybe the, the parents have a better view as a, as a, as kind of a voting population, they have a better view that discipleship is the shared responsibility between the church, which is the equipping body. And then there's the parents, which are kind of the implementing body. So, and that's precisely kind of what's not happening. Again, the data is saying the equipping is what's not happening. Parents are saying, mm-hmm. okay, I get it. I, I, I get that I, I have some level of responsibility, but I need to be equipped. So parents need vision, they need equipping, and they need the tools. So in the church, we've been quick to give them the tools and the soundbite. Parents, you're responsible. Here's the tool. Parents, you're responsible. Here's the tool. But they're lacking this level of vision that says, that comes through equipping, by the way, equipping that says, parents, lift your eyes to, to when your kids are 35, 45, 50 years old. Who are they going to become? Help them to feel the pain of what that's going to be like in a future that you and I can hardly even imagine. Mm. And we need to be so motivated by that vision that we're willing to kind of wire our lives differently to actually engage in the discipleship process of mm. discipling our own kids. If yeah. we're going to get there, we're not going to get there until we make equipping seriously, the serious priority. By the way, that's yeah. why we did this project. That's why we did the project on how did children's ministry leaders spend their time because we have to spend more time in, in actually equipping the parents. If we don't do that, uh, this sounds harsh, but we're, the needle's just not going to move. If parents aren't equipped to disciple their kids, it's not going to move. And I have practical suggestions if you want to talk about how we think we can do that. Uh, when when I was, my first graduate education was in uh, clinical psychology, and I worked with a professor who uh, developed a manualized treatment for children with conduct disorder, uh, oppositional defiant disorder, and ADD, ADHD. Yeah. And so we had a, a child study lab at the University of Florida. She had a child study lab at the University of Florida that I was working in. And one of the things that they would do, her vision was a uh, crime-free Gainesville, Florida, right? Because she's going to treat these pre-sociopathic kids at three to six rather than put them in jail at 18, right? And so she developed a lab where she had a one-way mirror, bug in the ear, therapist talking, train parents to be play therapists for their own child because you're with them seven days a week, right? And so we would coach the skills, we would teach the skills, we'd bug in the ear, we'd stand behind the mirror, and we'd, okay, this is that, okay, now try this. And we would we would co- we'd train. I mean, it was just straight training, you know, it, just the, the vision and the implementation, the amount of expense and time, but it was like one family at a time, one family at a time. And the results were phenomenal with these kids. It was, it was really unbelievable, the change. And I can only imagine on a spiritual level, I was completely unspiritually minded, right? I mean, just completely secularly minded, uh, but we, we need some sort of like, and, and you can share this. I, I want to hear your thoughts on like, what does training look like? Like how do churches like really train skills and equip parents and not just hand them like, here's a, here's a manual or a book or something. 
Go do it. I would imagine a huge percent of your listening audience are males, depending based on who I understand you guys to be, right? So, so most males are not the primary cooks or chefs in their home. So let's use cooking as an example, because uh, I think it may it may be more relevant. But but if I said to you, hey, here's a recipe, we're going to make a, 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 a blackberry cobbler, you know, I love blackberry cobbler, by the way. But so if, if we're but if, if you're a, if you're not a baker or a cook um, and I just and I just describe to you in audio, like, here's what you need to do. Boom, 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 boom. You got it. OK, go do it. Right. Like that's that's like in every week we tell our parents, mm-hmm. maybe our preaching and teaching you need to disciple your kids. Maybe we give a couple of practical examples. That's very much like, hey, make a blackberry cobbler, do this, do this, do this. Like that's pretty much a list, a passive listening process. But if I were to get our listening audience in the room and say, okay, we're going to make a blackberry cobbler. And we walk through with the ingredient. You're touching the ingredients. You're measuring them out. You're mixing it. You're baking. You're tasting it. That's a multi-sensory experience. That's literal equipping on how to make a blackberry cobbler. By the way, when are we? Ha- I'm so hungry for that coffee right now. So, <laughs> uh, anyway, but in child discipleship, you know, imagine imagine a, a local church context where we have let's let's say it's a mid sized church of 400 congregants in in the main chapel or auditorium, and then we've got our children kind of over in the children's wing, but we've got this multi purpose facility that's sitting empty on a Sunday morning. What if a pastor had such a vision? that he wanted to see the children discipled in his congregation. They said, you know what, that that multi-purpose facility is sitting empty on Sunday morning. What if we developed a four-week course on how to train our parents to engage with their children in highly relational ways, that's belonging, in deeply scriptural ways, that's becoming, in truly experiential ways, uh, or believing in the becoming. Mm-hmm. You know, what, what, if, what if we use that in, in like four times a year, we or maybe it's twice a year, whatever, twice a year or four times a year, we try to get our parents to go take this. So instead of being in the in the church service, they're in a multi-purpose room. Well, that does take away from the morning teaching, but I, I can just about uh you know bet knowing the power of equipping that these parents are gonna walk out of there after four weeks more they've they've grasped the vision, they're more motivated, and you've given them ways, multi-sensory ways to have the confidence to say. I can do this. I can talk to my kids about the Bible. I can talk to my kids about how I've messed up and, and experienced the forgiveness of God or uh, just the overall discipleship process with our children. I think pastors have got to get to the point where they realize cultural formation is so powerful. If we don't actually equip our parents more than just tell them, equip them, then I think we're going to see a higher percentage of parents who are actually participating in discipleship at home. And two things are going to happen. We're going to see the kids being formed as young disciples more, and we're going to actually see the parents grow as disciple makers because they're participating in the process of, of getting active in their faith. And so if I was a pastor, I would find a creative way to move just from talking points and teaching and preaching to actually equipping, which is multi-sensory just like baking that cobbler, when when we're multi-sensory actually doing it, we're learning more and we're gaining the confidence that we can do this at home. That's really good. So um, are there tools or things that a church could pretty readily pick up to run something like that through on a quarterly basis or biannual basis? Yeah, our, our organization is launching uh, a training uh, year one. 
um, it's it's for church leaders. So you could come this next year and get equipped on how to do this. Um, it's called the Resilient Child Discipleship Training. I'll get you the link and we can drop it in the show notes. But the Resilient Child Discipleship Training is a is a is a one day Saturday event. So if you're a pastor and you're like, man, I love this idea. What you know, you could send your people to one of the six trainings around the country. Uh, this next year, they're going to be in Dallas, Nashville, Tampa, L.A., Chicago, and Atlanta. And so we're going to be in those six markets. So, so if you if you sent your team of two or three or five, kind of your chief leaders in children's ministry, they could get equipped on how to do this in your local congregation. But That's what we good. do, what we do in this one day training is it's five sessions. Session one is the overview of the three primary factors that form child disciples, and then session two is on belong. Highly relational. Session three is on believe deeply scriptural. Session four is become the experiential part. And then session five is that evaluation piece, like how to actually evaluate your children's ministry with Barna and glue and that whole assessment. But your children's ministry team could take that, those same notes, those same objectives and help equip the parents. Cause what we do within each one of those three B's, we give the definition of why belonging, for example, is important. Then we go into the insight. Uh, you know, we give the definition of what it is, the insight into why it's important. Then we go into the four practices that anyone can do with their kids, whether it's a volunteer or a parent. Then we talk about the goal, what we're aiming for, and the prayer for each child. So every session gives the definition, the insight, the four practices that anyone can can begin to do, the goal, and then the then the prayer. And so you, you could imagine that happening in your local church context or over a four-week, you know, kind of training session. You're actually moving beyond talking points to equipping with parents. Then I think you're going to see parents kind of start having the confidence that I can mm. do this. I, I can I can do a couple of touch points each week with each one of my children to kind of start moving the discipleship needle uh, with my kids. And when you multiply that over, you know, ten years or eight years, I think we're going to see kids, you know, taking steps forward in their faith. So when you train on that, is that something that is for parents to do at home? And or uh, sound it certainly sounds like that, but is it also does that also potentially change the face of your children's ministry? That, actually, it's the opposite. The, the, okay. the, the way the tra- is the way the training is written now is for the local church, but the four practices, the, the the definition, the insights, and the practices can not only be used at church; they can be parent facing as well and be used at home. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, that makes sense. Because you're 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 sending your staff over to learn how to implement within the Correct. church, right? But Correct. is some of that training of trainers, like training of parents, to be the disciples, right, within the church walls, within church confines? Yeah. To be explicitly clear, the primary purpose of the training is for the local church, but we've written the objectives in such a way that if I were a parent attending this training, I'd be like, "Dude, this isn't just for church. This is for my kids at home." You know, so gotcha, it's gotcha. all okay. it's all transferable. Some some of the language you might have to translate a little bit in your head from church to home, but the objectives are the same. Okay, so that that's a tool that churches can use to kind of reevaluate, retool, and revamp their that's own discipleship process. Well, if I was a pastor, you know, that's you know, knowing how strongly do. our kids are being formed in the school system and through social media, I I would get my leaders through this training. And I would challenge them, you know, until until Awana has time to make the parent-facing training, how can we translate this into parent? That's exactly what I'd be doing. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. 
And I just gave away a hint. I just gave away a hint. We are working on the parent version, but it's probably another 24 months away. So gotcha. Okay. So Matt, is there anything as we wrap up this session that you'd like to just conclude by saying that uh, might tidy some things up or clarify anything? I I think if just and I would end with one word and it's hope. I, Hmm. I think that child discipleship is hopeful. You know, child children's ministry is a broad term. It's like it's like a it's like a really long Olympic sized pool that has a shallow end and it has a deep end, you know, mm-hmm. and the, it, it can mean a lot of things. Children's ministry can mean child care. It can mean babysitting. It can mean good Bible teaching. It could mean moralism and legalism. It can mean so many things. But mm-hmm. child discipleship is like playing darts. Like you're 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 aiming at a very specific target. Right. So. And I think it's so hopeful because this idea of cultural formation is so powerful. And our kids are, their kids are just under so much pressure to, with social media and with all of the dominant forces within secularism, that to think, you know what, if we could just be a little more intentional and ask some, you know, ask that question, what is it that leads to lasting faith in kids and keep drilling in that singular direction? I just find that super hopeful. I think we're going to see, you know, percentages change and we're going to see more children thriving in their faith into young adulthood. I I am very hopeful about what's happening. Thank you so much for listening. I hope that you enjoyed that conversation between Matt Markins and Matt Dabbs. If you did enjoy it, stay tuned because here in the next couple of days, I'll be dropping part two of that conversation. So if you found that helpful, make sure to click subscribe if you haven't already, because I'd love for you to know when I release that next episode. And in honor of Matt Markins and the Awana organization, I want to say, have a great day.